What does your employer think you are worth? What do you think you are worth to your employer? There's almost always a difference between those two. In 1938, minimum wage law was passed. These days, there is a lot of debate about how much the minimum wage should be or if it should be at all. The minimum wage issue has a very colorful and inglorious past, but this episode is a focus on the wage and the unintended, or maybe not unintended, consequences. The Culinary Libertarian Podcast, episode 165. Welcome to the Culinary Libertarian Podcast, where the philosophy is free, but the food is on you. Hello folks, Dan Reed here, the Culinary Libertarian. Welcome back to the podcast. Happy to have you here. Happy to be here. If you are the person who knows there is an easier way to cook, but don't know where to find it, look no further than my cookbook, Cooking for Comfort. Use my blog link, culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort, to find the link to Amazon and also find reader-submitted photos. Surf to culinarylibertarian.com slash cookingforcomfort to buy yourself a copy or get it as a Christmas gift for the cook in your life. One of the hottest political topics is minimum wage. Finding someone without an opinion is rare. Finding someone with the right opinion is even more rare. The arguments, which look more like a comedy sketch of disagreements and banter and name-calling and resemble not at all an argument, are highly charged and passionate affairs. Passion is good. So, let me get the ball rolling by laying my cards on the table, so to speak. The proper, federally mandated minimum wage is zero dollars and zero cents. All right, folks, that's going to do it. Thanks for coming to my TED Talk. No, I'm kidding. The show's not over, but there is no support to be found for the government setting the base price for labor. If you are still listening, I'm glad you stayed. Some folks maybe didn't hear the federally mandated part. They just heard, no money for you. It might be that for some folks, discriminating what was actually said from what they wanted to hear is hard. Of course, a worker is due a wage for the value she provides the business. The value an employee provides is worth compensation. That's not a distinction between the value the job done well provides the business. A janitor is vital. Good janitors are more vital. A good dishwasher can make dinner service smooth sailing, and a bad dishwasher can bring the kitchen and the restaurant to a standstill. Nearly no one would argue that compensation for labor is wrong. 
where people trip over themselves to scream about a point is how much that compensation should be. A living wage, they say. Some protest and demand $15 an hour. The sense of entitlement that goes with such a proposition is too broad and varied for a podcast episode, but I think it exists. I side hustle as one of those gig economy food delivery fellows. When I drive food orders to customers, I have to stop in different restaurants. Some are so terribly messy, I never want to eat there. If the argument is, pay the staff more money and they'll care more about the crap on the floor, I say, if you don't care now about the crap on the floor, you are just going to be a more expensive slob. No wage exists to make the apathetic care about doing a good job. Productivity is tied to wage and rate. The new guy is not as good at the job as the seasoned employee. Starting the new guy at a higher rate does not increase new guy's productivity. As I'll show later, setting the price for labor causes a specific harm, and as it happens, it is to one age group mostly and one race particularly. A heart surgeon and a pastry chef are specialized people with specialized skill sets. Now, I don't know any famous heart surgeons, but I do know Jacques Therese, Mr. Chocolate, if you please, can command a high price and probably get it. What Jacques can do with chocolate is a rare skill set. The value a person adds in addition to the level of productivity and the skill the job demands are two ways to measure his contribution to the business. There are lots of ways, and this episode isn't about assessing what is or is not value. We had a cook in Tallahassee who was so good as a line cook and as a baker that we bumped her rate twice in five weeks to make sure she stayed. What value did she add? She was on time. Her cooking was solid. It was right. It was seasoned. She got on well with her co-workers and rarely got frazzled. She was efficient and orderly and therefore productive with her time. She brought a level of precision and excellence that lifted the hooks around her better than we management could. That's value. The heart surgeon who kills every fifth patient has little value to any hospital. Put simply, a worker who produces a value to the business of $5 an hour is no bargain for the wage of $7.25 an hour. The worker who provides a value of $10 an hour is a steal at $7.25. There are some hidden costs to the business in that mandatory hourly rate I'll get to a little bit later. Basically, 
do poorly on the job and get paid poorly. Do well on the job and get paid well. All right, I think value is established well enough. How much is a heart surgeon worth? I have no idea. How much is a superior line cook worth? I have no idea. And here's where the crux of my position comes into view. The desk jockeys, who add no value at all to anything, are busy pushing around papers and pencils, determining that a federally established minimum wage for this job or that job, with no idea what any job is worth, also has no idea what any single job is worth. That decision can only be made by the person paying the wage. The second thought YouTuber put a video out about the minimum wage debate, scare quotes, and it follows the predictable Bernie bot classist profit is bad if it isn't shared trope with rental prices and the McDonald's of Denmark added for extra oomph. It's pretty terrible and makes points about inflation and rental prices only to gloss over them and ignore that both of these are, in the end, the result of government intervention. You and I can't print cash, but the government can. As to rent control, the subject is handled by Tom Woods much better than I could handle it. I'll put a link to an episode he did on rent control on today's show notes page, which is culinarylibertarian.com slash 165. One quick point I want to make about rent control is it's the same idea as minimum wage. It is the setting of a price for a thing with the full force of the U.S. government to enforce it. I'll have a bit more to say about government at the end. Why fight for something that so few earn? When the minimum wage is in the news, it's everywhere in the news. People protest with signs and megaphones and big crowds, and it's quite a production. It might give you the idea that a quarter or more of the labor force is paid minimum wage. You might think that the impact of this dire wage is endemic and the whole of society hangs in the balance of a congressional vote. Well, maybe the media hyped it a wee bit. According to the BLS.gov webpage, quote, the percentage of hourly paid workers earning the prevailing federal minimum wage or less declined from 1.9% in 2019 to 1.5% in 2020. This remains well below the percentage of 13.4% recorded in 1979 when data were first collected on a regular basis, end quote. Let's round to 2% of the labor force is earning the federally mandated minimum wage. Or 98% of workers earn more than the federally mandated minimum wage. Does the news coverage give you that idea? I want to ask a few questions, kind of as a thought experiment. 
what jobs are those that are paying a minimum wage? Entry-level jobs at restaurants probably, probably mostly fast food chains, maybe retail jobs. How terrible do those workers have to be at those jobs not to earn even a nickel more? Asked another way, if the boss doesn't value that worker's efforts over time to exceed the barest amount allowable, and frankly, this person may not be worth that base mandated wage, then why is that the employer's problem? When the news clamors on about a worker who hasn't earned a raise in years, that tells me a whole lot more about the employee than it does about the employer. Of course, any statistic such as that one means anyone earning a nickel more is not included in that stat. People earning $8 an hour are not included. Averages are terrible things to use to make a point since the salary of LeBron James and the $8 an hour grocery store shelf stocker don't reveal the truth about either rate. Now, I have no idea what LeBron makes per game, but I'm sure it's a pretty tidy sum. So, let's move a little bit over here. According to census.gov, quote, median household income was $67,521 in 2020, a decrease of 2.9% from the 2019 median income of $69,560. This is the first statistically significant decline in median household income since 2011, end quote. Now, obviously, this isn't going to be a part of the show, but clearly the pandemic and the government telling you to stay home because you're inessential, that has a big part of this, but that doesn't factor in. So let's go back for a second here. A 40-hour work week for 52 weeks is 2,080 labor hours. 2,080 hours times the federal minimum wage of $7.25 is an annual pay of $15,080. That's a difference of over $52,000 from the mean, sorry, the median income. Now, my crude math skills are divide 52,000 by 2,080 hours, and that's about $25.21 an hour additional to the federally required minimum wage, making that around $32.46 an hour for our teenager deep fry cook. What I know of the restaurant business side is that margins are razor thin. Their income and profit depends on volume. Margins aren't made better with higher costs of fuel. Yes, shipping does add to the bottom line since many companies will add a fuel surge charge to invoices. Between the costs you see, labor, food, bar, and the costs you don't see, rent, repair, maintenance, insurance, common area maintenance if applicable, taxes and advertising and other expenses, restaurant owners are not rolling in Walter White fat stacks. 
that second thought video narrator said, if you can't afford to pay a living wage, no one has ever defined what that is, you should not be in business. That's a bold statement from someone who probably has never had to meet a payroll. That's a bold statement deciding that all the people employed earning less than the mythical living wage should be out of a job entirely. This is a callousness I can't comprehend. One aspect of the living wage also overlooked is the money management skills of the worker. Between the demand that everyone go to college and take out massive loans to pay for it, and the seemingly constant pressure to live a consumption lifestyle, which no one has taught these people how to manage, is at least part of the problem. Let's go back to the Bureau of Labor Statistics report that read the percentage of hourly paid workers earning the prevailing federal minimum wage is less or less declined from 1.9 to 1.5. That's a big deal. The fight for 15 is a clever ploy to scoop all those workers into one group who earn less than $15 an hour and pay them more. Let's put aside the restaurant business for a moment and look at its service many parents require. Childcare. The Heritage.org website page, the impact of the $15 federal minimum wage on the cost of childcare, reads, quote, using data on childcare workers' wages across the 50 states and regulations restricting childcare providers' ability to reduce costs this analysis estimates that a $15 an hour federal minimum wage would raise the cost of child care by an average of 21% across the U.S., adding $3,728 per year in child care costs for a family with two children, end quote. The impact to the poor would be much greater than the impact to the well-off. This is one problem the central planner doesn't consider or care about. What harm comes from his demand that business pay workers more? If the wage law is enforceable by law, and finally that means either a bullet or a cage, then the government is acting like a third-party thief, demanding the business owner pay the staff more cash. Where does the cash come from? Is that government desk jockeys held accountable when the plan backfires? When the necessary unintended consequences kick in that fewer parents can't afford childcare at those prices turns into fewer children at the facility and possible layoffs, does the desk jockey get fired for causing the worker formerly employed at all now being unemployed? One curious passage not explained was the regulations restricting the child care facility's ability to reduce costs. Oh, without government, who would get in the way of us running a business efficiently? I mentioned some hidden costs. There are two costs. One is taxes, and the other is un- or underemployment. There is a third, the unemployment fee. 
uh, unemployment compensation fee. I know it's a thing, but I don't know how it's calculated. The government has its grubby hands in the businessman's till again and again, but I'm going to focus on these two. Let's do taxes first. For every employee hired, the employer pays matching taxes. Economist Walter Williams, in a 2007 article about minimum wage, wrote, quote, The hourly wage is not the only cost of hiring a worker. There is also legally mandated fringe benefits such as employer payments for Social Security, Medicare, unemployment compensation, and workers' compensation programs at federal and state levels. These mandated benefits may run as high as 30% of the hourly wage, end quote. Plainly, as the rate increases for any worker, so does the employer's tax obligation increase for that worker. The other issue is un- or underemployment. Economist Thomas Sowell, in his 1980 book, Knowledge and Decisions, he wrote this passage, which I transcribed from his reading. To put a finer point on the minimum wage and unemployment, Sowell writes, quote, historically, lower skill levels did not prevent black males from having labor force participation rates higher than that of white males for every U.S. census from 1890 to 1930. Since then, the general growth of wage-fixing arrangements, minimum wage laws, labor unions, civil service, pay scales, etc., has reversed that and made more and more blacks unemployable despite their rising levels of education and skill, end quote. Well, that's all fine in there, Mr. Danny Boy, but those are old sources. That's true. But the laws of economics are timeless. Just like the law of gravity, it works even when you don't want it to. However, for the determined, let's look at Seattle, which passed a minimum wage ordinance to raise the rate to $15 an hour. Seattle passed laws to raise the minimum wage. The discussions were heated and passionate, and no one paper or source is going to settle the matter for those who are intent that more cash in the pockets of the workers is a harmless scenario. The real-world observations in the paper, minimum wage increases, wages, and low-wage unemployment evidence from Seattle cites this passage in their conclusion, quote, the work of least paid workers might be performed more efficiently by more skilled and experienced workers commanding a higher wage. This work could, in some circumstances, be automated or delegated to consumers. In other circumstances, employers may conclude that the work of least paid workers need not be done at all, end quote. Low-wage workers are more expendable than higher-wage workers. Let's take a moment out for a word from Jake about his Tasting Anarchy podcast. Hey 
Hey everyone, Jake here, host of the Tasting Anarchy podcast. Join my co-host Mason and I each week as we explore the world of wine and alcohol through a liberty lens. You can find us on all your major podcatchers, tastinganarchy.com or Tasting Anarchy on Twitter. Tasting Anarchy, your wine and liberty podcast. Find out how much government is in your drink. Anyone who shops at a grocery store or a Home Depot knows there are self-checkout lanes. If you've been to McDonald's, there is an automated ordering kiosk and maybe one register. There is a cost to higher wages, and that cost will include fewer hours and fewer jobs and more automation. In addition to fewer staffed checkouts, Find an employee if you have a question or need customer service. That's my own anecdotal observation, but customer service is not now what it was even a few years ago. It seems there is no problem we face in society that can't be made far, far worse by the government trying to fix it. Price fixing, and that's what setting a minimum wage is, causes more harm and makes more problems than it solves. If prosperity were only a legislative action away, then all the world has to do is pass more laws. Plainly, that just doesn't work. No country can legislate itself into prosperity and liberty. This episode was inspired in part by the FDR faithful who were never taught how to think. It is not at all an end to the conversation about minimum wage, but it is the start. Any question that begins with, should the government, the answer is always a firm no. Then a look at who wins, the desk jockeys, and who loses, you and me, and to look at the unintended and intended consequences. I said I had a bit more to say about government, and I do, but I don't. That is, I do, but the quote's not mine. In the age of COVID central planning, and we've seen a lot of that, even the central planners are growing weary. European Parliament member Christian Anderson commented recently, quote, Whenever a government claims to have the people's interest at heart, you need to think again. In the entire history of mankind, there has never been a political elite sincerely concerned about the well-being of regular people. What makes any of us think that it is different now? If the Age of Enlightenment has brought forth anything, it is certainly this. Never take anything any government tells you at face value. I had an email chat with former guest and economist Anthony Davies. I told him about this episode and that I was looking for a comparison that's pretty close to and clearly refutes the claim that a higher wage makes everyone richer. This was his answer. Quote, The way I handle this is to point out that the money required to pay the higher wage has to come from somewhere. Either it comes from other workers in the form of layoffs, 
or it comes from customers in the form of higher prices, or it comes from investors in the form of lesser returns, or it comes from suppliers in the form of lesser payments, which in turn becomes layoffs or lesser returns for the suppliers, workers, and investors. What's clear is that raising the minimum wage can't make everyone richer. At the absolute best, it will make some richer while making others poorer by the same amount. At worst, it will make some richer while making others poorer by a greater amount. Another thing I do is to ask how many people you employ to clean your house, do your dishes, wash your laundry, or mow your lawn. Most people don't employ anyone to do those things. But why? The first answer people will give is that they can't afford to hire people to do those things. To which I reply, yes you can. Cancel your streaming media or cell phone service, sell your car, and take the bus or walk. Move into a less expensive house. If you do those things, you can afford to hire someone, at least part-time, to do some of those things. But then people respond, but I don't need to hire someone to do those things because I can do them myself. Exactly. What the person just said is that it isn't worth it to hire someone to do those jobs because what you'd have to pay the worker exceeds the value of having the job done. And that's exactly how employers think about it. If the cost of hiring the worker to do a job exceeds what it's worth to have the job done, the employer won't hire the worker. And here we see the key point about the minimum wage. It doesn't make workers more valuable, it makes them more expensive. End quote. All right, folks, that's going to do it. I'll put the Thomas Sowell link on the show notes page, culinarylibertarian.com slash 165. It is an American Enterprise Institute link with an embedded YouTube player, and I transcribed that video so that I could read it. But it's worth a listen, and also it's worth reading the content on the page. For more about economics, check out the Mises.org website. That's M-I-S-E-S dot O-R-G. Be prepared to stay a while. It's, it's huge, but in a good way. There's so much content. They have an amazing amount of resources, articles, books. Uh, a good portion of those books are free books uh, in the form of digital. Uh, and it just, I can't recommend it enough for getting good, solid, foundational information on many things, particularly economics. Thank you for listening. If you like the show, please click over to culinarylibertarian.com support and donate through Patreon or PayPal to help to support the show. Also, rate and review the podcast on your favorite podcatcher. Get your recipes ready for a fabulous baking season. Have a great week, and I'll see you soon. Music for the Culinary Libertarian podcast is provided by Matthew Bankert at mattbankert.com.